Nikki was a terrorist. She was a journalistic terrorist. She would get you if you didn't play ball with her, and she would absolutely attack. She was also pretty entertaining to read. Welcome to the Powers That Be Daily, Puck's podcast focused on the intersection of Wall Street, Washington, Silicon Valley, and Hollywood, and the players who run it all. I'm Peter Hamby. It's Wednesday, October 19th, and today Matt Bellany is here to talk about Nikki Fink, the blogger who terrorized Hollywood for almost a decade before social media made her irrelevant. Today, Fink is mostly forgotten to internet history, but Matt explains how someone so reviled made such an impact on media. And later, Eric Gardner comes on to discuss the woke wars on Wall Street, the activist proxy battles on the street, and the secret players behind the scenes who are really running the show. We'll hear about all that and more in today's episode of Powers That Be. Happy Wednesday, everybody. I'm joined today by Matt Bellany. If you subscribe to Puck, if you listen to the powers that be, there's a good chance you care about media, what works, what doesn't work, the history of it. And Matt wrote a fascinating piece last week, which basically was an obituary for Nikki Fink. You might not know who Nikki Fink is. She's described in these obituaries, she died last week, as a sharp-tongued Hollywood columnist, a caustic Hollywood chronicler, iconoclastic, but those are all uh, euphemisms for the fact that people hated her, feared her, thought she was terrible. But she did define a moment in internet journalism, probably not for the better. But Matt, who was Nikki Fink and why does she matter? Uh, Nikki, first, the top level is Nikki Fink was the founder and editor of Deadline Hollywood Daily, which exists to this day. It's now just called Deadline. And it was an early web blogger business that's launched in 2006. And during that period of time, pre-social media, but post-internet, you know, do-it-at-home software where anybody could be impactful in the news. And there was this whole generation of people who became a big deal. I'm thinking like Perez Hilton or, you know, the, the original Wonkette and, you know, people like that that just kind of established themselves as web journalists and they had a great run until social media kind of took over and then the rise of the BuzzFeeds and all of that. But Nikki was a terrorist, for lack of a better word. She was a journalistic terrorist in the sense that she would target people. She absolutely used blackmail tactics to threaten to reveal unflattering personal information if you didn't work with her on a story. She would call and scream at you. 24 hours a day, did not matter if it was 3 a.m. or 3 p.m. She was never seen in public, so she created this aura around herself as this all-knowing and all-seeing journalist type that would get you if you didn't play ball with her, and she would absolutely attack. Now, those are the bad things. She was also pretty entertaining to read. She had a weird writing style that was very kind of word vomit and filled with bile, but never boring. She would not pull punches. And the perception, at least in Hollywood, was that this was a truth teller who did not care about the BS machinations or publicists behind the scenes. Now, I, I know that that's not totally true, and she did carry water for a lot of the most powerful people in entertainment. They were just her sources that she carried water for. But 
during that period that where she thrived from 2006 to almost up to till she left in 2013, Nikki was by far the most powerful and impactful journalist in entertainment. You write in your piece, like the legacy print publications, like Hollywood Reporter, for example, they would look down on her and be like, oh, we would never print such a thing or we would never write in such a way. And now Evelyn writes that way, <laughs> or a lot of people do at least. Oh, absolutely. And I was there at the Hollywood Reporter in the mid 2000s, late 2000s when she was rising. And the lack of just awareness of the senior leadership there at the time as to what was going on in the media world was pretty shocking. This was a daily trade newspaper, if you can believe a thing existed. It did until 2010. And you go into these meetings and they would talk about what to put on the front page of tomorrow's issue. And the younger people in the meeting, I was one of them, would look around and be like, well, wait a second, Nikki already reported that two hours ago. And that's going to be on the front page of The Hollywood Reporter when everyone has already read it the day before. Like, there was just no situational awareness of what was going on in media. Luckily, that people caught on and people figured out what she was doing and how to compete there, which is why I say if Nikki Fink came along today, there's absolutely no way she would have amassed the power that she did. Also, the social media channels that people have today where the subjects of her article have more power in their own channels than she did as the editor of Deadline. So if she was going to talk shit about some celebrity, they could just go on their Instagram or Twitter and say this is all false. Like what kinds of stories was she writing that got her such attention in Los Angeles? Well, there's two things. She was writing about the business of entertainment in a way that the traditional trade outlets had absolutely no idea how to compete with. She was injecting personality, agendas. People, you know, the agents were always out to kill the other agencies, she was writing it that way and that the trades would never go there. You know, Ari Emanuel, the head of, in, of Endeavor, when they were taking over the William Morris agency, it was a very hostile merger in which most of the William Morris people ended up out. Nikki was writing about it with the help of Ari, allegedly. I don't know that Ari Emanuel himself leaked all this stuff. I suspect that he did. She was writing about it as if this was war. And that these people were casualties and this guy's getting cut off and this guy's being shown the door in very personal terms. And she was reporting on this stuff often before people knew about it. She was writing about it in a way that put her in the room with these people and made it so that things were coming out with her before they were communicated to the rest of the staff. So she was an active participant in that deal. And it was a very hostile deal. So if an agent gave the news of some deal to a trade with Nikki then like call or email them and like scream at them. Yeah. And not just scream, threaten. And she would threaten the journalists. I mean, I was on the receiving end of many of those emails where it, it was things like you must delete posts. Now I was on this 20 minutes ago. She would backdate the timestamps of her posts and then claim an exclusive on a story. And I'm talking like, a minimal story, like some executive promotion. She would like screw around with the timestamps in order to rewrite history. She would also threaten journalists when she perceived them as threats to her, meaning if they were, they written some good story, she would like call a book editor and try to get a journalist's book deal canceled because she had heard some unethical thing or this person was lying about something or you don't want to be in, in business with this person. Everyone thinks he's a joke awful stuff like that. She would try to get publicists fired 
She would go after agents privately. I mean, I have in my email inbox, the number of emails from Nikki Fink, it was hundreds of emails and I never worked with her. That's so crazy. The emails I would get from her were just nonsense. She's got a deadline and Petsky to sue the Hollywood reporter once because we used some code of a website that he owned in, in, a, in a post and she found that to be copyright infringement. She would send legal letters when we broke a story before her because she was on it and we utilized some information that she had reported on first, like nonsense, nonsense, troll stuff. So like, how did she fade from view? Well, she and Penske coexisted for a few years and he endured her. I mean, she was the like constantly in his ear, calling, screaming at him. I don't know how he tolerated this kind of thing. I've heard stories of Nikki refusing to hand over a story, locking people out of CMSs, like things like that that were just unbelievable. Slowly deadline morphed from what Nikki was doing into more of a traditional trade publication. They hired traditional trade reporters. And instead of trying to get, you know, the, the latest firing, she was using her all of her dark arts to try to get the latest casting or cancellation scoop or things like that. That deadline still does today. It's just a, it's a normal trade publication today. But that was never going to last long term. She ultimately had a falling out with Penske. She ended up leaving deadline and they did a settlement agreement with her in which they paid her a lot of money to not compete with deadline and to go away essentially. And that's what she did. And then she died last week at the age of 68. And even, even we texted about this, but like even Penske's statement was, I forget what it said at this point. It was like, you know, lover or hater. She was always there right. <laughs> at her best, at her best. She was innovative, you know, that kind of thing. She presented herself as this trailblazer who could not be bought, who was above it all. But in reality, she was absolutely doing the bidding of very powerful Hollywood figures that used her for their purposes. And she was a complicated figure and did a lot of very innovative things, but was also a pretty terrible person. And in fact, one of her biggest fears being exposed and being like photographed or seen out in public actually happened in 2014 after she left deadline there was this weird website set up called nickystink.com <laughs> and there was a photograph of her that appeared it was the first photograph that uh, appeared anywhere of her from her deadline days it was like an old file photo that everybody always used of her that looked nothing like her and a paparazzi found her because Brett Easton Ellis, of all people, the author, had tweeted that he lived in her building. Paparazzi saw that. They camped out outside and they got a photo of her and put it on the Internet. And it absolutely destroyed her. She was so pissed. She never appeared in public again. And um, she ended up passing away in Florida. Matt, thank you for the history lesson. I love geeking out and stuff like this with you. Appreciate it. No problem. When we come back, Ben Land is here with Eric Gardner to discuss the woke wars on Wall Street. Hey, Powers That Be listeners, I'm here to tell you that there's no reason to panic the next time you're searching for the perfect gift. Now you can use Gift Mode on Etsy. Gift Mode on Etsy takes the stress out of gifting, so you can find the perfect item for anyone and any occasion. It's easy. Just tap or click Gift Mode on your Etsy app or Etsy.com. Then answer a few short questions about who you're shopping for and what they like. And Gift Mode instantly gives you a curated list of gift ideas based on hundreds of personas. 
I use Etsy all the time and have for years. I bought my brother some artwork. I bought my wife some jewelry. I even bought a rug for our living room on Etsy. I love it. But there's a lot of pressure around gifting. I usually have a hard time thinking of gift ideas for friends and family members around the holidays or birthdays in my life. And sometimes I get super stressed trying to find the perfect thing. But now with gift mode on Etsy, I can search hundreds of gifting personas and find so many incredible items. And I actually just found the perfect gift for a buddy who's just as into Cincinnati sports as I am, a hot cup of Joe, Joe Burrow mug. That's right, I found that on Etsy, it's amazing. Now it's simple to find gifts made by independent sellers for all the people in your life. So whether you need a housewarming gift for the new homeowner or a birthday present for the pickleballer, Gift Mode has you covered. Need to find the perfect gift? Don't panic, try Gift Mode on Etsy now. Welcome back. I'm Ben Landy here with Eric Gardner. How you doing, Eric? I'm doing well. I also want to give a quick shout out to Teddy Schleifer, who covered for me yesterday while I was on call for jury duty. I was not picked for the case, which was going to be five to seven weeks. So thank God for that. I'll do my civic duty another time. But Eric, I was wondering actually if you have ever actually been called to serve on a jury because you sort of seem like exactly the kind of person that lawyers would not want on their case. I always respond to the notice of, uh, you know, jury duty. But as soon as I get in there and they learn what I do for for a living, they usually smirk at each other and they ask, you know, are you going to write about this case? And I and I say, well, that's awfully presumptuous of you. <laughs> and then they excuse me. Uh, there's no way that I'd ever be picked uh, to serve on a jury, I think. Well, that is a good card to be able to play. You did some reporting earlier this week on the so-called woke wars taking over the Fortune 500 referring in a sort of tongue-in-cheek way, not only to the rise of ESG on Wall Street, that's the focus on environmental, social, governance factors in investing, but also the way that not just liberal activists, but also now conservative activists are using these corporate bylaws and the shareholder laws to push political agendas. And of course, you you sort of got into all of the -the behind-the-scenes mechanics of how shareholder voting works and how it can be weaponized but I was curious, what sort of most surprised you in digging into this story? Yeah, I think the most surprising thing is that there are only a couple of firms that actually really run the voting, that they uh, recommend, you know, how these companies should should be voting. And they have, you know, such muscle in this space. It surprises me that this has become a cottage industry. People are positioning themselves as, as experts, both in how to craft shareholder proposals and how to pass them. I mean, it, it, this has you know, really become you know, the next phase of politicking. Uh, these shareholder proposals are booming. They've gone from you know, a couple hundred a year to almost a thousand, maybe even past a thousand right now. They're becoming a lot more explosive in nature. They're a lot more political, a lot more social. You see activists from both sides pushing an agenda. The SEC is trying to encourage shareholders to steer corporate behavior. Yeah, so this would be like anything from an activist investor pushing Disney to disclose pay equity issues in gender or race or sexual orientation, or it could be pushing a a company to explain why they're not investing in gun manufacturers. I mean, it could be anything with a a political or non- political valence. But um, what actually is the threshold to get one of these votes put forward? I know that it requires like 65, 66% supermajority to actually get one of these things passed, which is why you need these firms to wrangle votes. That itself is a very complicated thing. 
But what does it actually take to get one of these shareholder votes before the board in the first place? Sure. It's a sliding scale on depending on how long you've held the equity. If you've held it for just one year, then you have to hold a little bit more. And if you've held it for three years, then a little bit less. But it's not that much, actually. It's around uh, 15000 to $25,000 worth of, of equity, which even a small trader can acquire that. You know, what happens, and, and this is, I think, a process that people don't understand, is shareholders will send in their proposals, and then the companies will go to the SEC and, and really kind of like ask the SEC's opinion about whether they need to actually put it in their proxy materials for the uh, annual vote. Uh, there's a, a whole list of reasons why companies might not have to. Those range from, you know, a lack of economic relevance. And in, in the past, you know, the proposals had to impact the company's bottom line by about like 5%. There's a, a reason for too much micromanaging or this is ordinary business. So, you know, companies will go to the SEC and say, you know, we don't think we need to really put this on the agenda item. And, you know, what's the new thing here is that uh, Gary Gensler, the uh, SEC chief in the Biden administration, he's basically, you know, narrowed the list of reasons for companies getting out of these proposals. That's one of the reasons why these uh, shareholder proposals are booming and, and why they've practically doubled in the past couple of years. Is there a concern, though, as well among some of these corporations that bad faith actors will sort of weaponize this process? either in a way that becomes a nuisance legally that they have to keep going to the SEC to get these things waved off or in ways that actually could have material impacts on the way they do business. You know, I think that if you're on a board for these companies, they do see this as, as a little bit of a, of a nuisance. You know, in the past, they've tried to be politically careful, not get themselves engaged in these culture wars. And now the culture wars are, are coming straight for their boardroom. In the end, all this is becoming very, very much like an election, very much like what we see every year at the ballot box. Eric, who actually has the power to vote when you have, say, your money locked up in some kind of ETF with Vanguard, where your 401k is with Fidelity? Is, is it those big institutional investors that actually have the power to vote? Or do the individual shareholders through those funds have any kind of fractional voting ability? You know, technically, I think that if you were a shareholder, even through a retirement fund, you could conceivably press your opinion. These uh, funds uh, send lots of materials out per year. But in reality, there's a lot of like passing of the buck here. You know, the people who, who put their money into an investment fund pass the buck and then the investment funds themselves pass it along. The power tends to be aggregated to a very small number of individuals who actually vote in these in these elections. It does sort of feel like we're at the dawn of a new sort of Citizens United moment, not in the sense that the political landscape has changed in a way that allows new kinds of behavior here, but just that there is this new recognition that these companies as culture war lightning rods can actually be manipulated to um, put them at the center of the culture wars in a way that maybe they hadn't been before. Yeah. And these corporations are big deals too. I mean, some of them have revenues that are, you know, on par with the GDP of, you know, many small countries. So it's no small thing to be able to control the companies. I mean, if you control a company, it's like controlling a small country and being able to steer their agenda. That's quite a big thing. And I think uh, some investors and some politically active uh, individuals are starting to recognize that. And I think these corporations are going to be the subject of a lot more politicking uh, in the future. 
Well, this is really fascinating stuff, Eric. Thanks for explaining it. And um, I'm sure there'll be a lot more to come. My pleasure and good luck on uh, your jury duty. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of The Powers That Be. As a reminder, The Powers That Be is the official podcast of Puck. We'd like to thank Ben Landy, Liz Goff, and Alex Bigler for their editorial and production guidance. If you like what you hear, please share with a friend. It really helps us keep delivering the inside scoop that only Puck can offer. Follow us on Twitter at Puck News. I'm Peter Hamby. See you tomorrow. This has been a presentation of Cadence 13 Studios. Please listen, rate, review, and follow all episodes wherever you get your podcasts. The Powers That Be Daily is executive produced by John Kelly, co-founder of Puck, and Chris Corcoran, chief content officer and founding partner of Cadence 13. 